As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. The Athletic. The only way to score is, of course, to play uh, with a handbrake off. Hello, I'm Adrian Clark, subbed in today for Ian Stone, and you're listening to Handbrake Off, the Arsenal podcast brought to you by The Athletic. I'm pleased to say I've got two members of The Athletic's Arsenal A-team keeping me company today. Yes, Amy Lawrence and James McNicholas have submitted their letters of intent to take part, which is a real relief. Hello, guys. Hiya. Hi, Adrian. Hello, what a week, eh, to take over from Stoney. Very, very strange. On and off the pitch, we're certainly not short of topics to discuss, even though one of them, and I think you might know what that is, dominates an agenda we'd probably all rather not have to discuss. But we must, I'm afraid, so that is where we will start. But before we get to the nuts and bolts of what on earth might happen in the coming days, my opening question to you guys today is this. Before Sunday evening's turn of events, what decision made by the club has most disappointed you in the past? Amy, let's start with you if I can. Uh, I think I'm going to go back to the uh, Arsenal bond, which uh, takes us to an era where football was changing quite radically um, in the aftermath of the Hillsborough disaster and the onset of all seater stadia, um, Arsenal decided to fund the uh, in, in, rebuilding of the North Bank into a big two tier, very modern uh, for its time, um, stand with seats in it. And the money was going to come a lot from fans who had to stump up, I think it was that one and a half thousand pounds each, something like that, if memory serves for basically the privilege of buying your season ticket in the place where you used to go and watch football. Um, <laughs> and we campaigned quite vigorously at the time. It was a it was a good era for fan activism. Um, I was remi- reminding myself of uh, when Maggie Thatcher wanted all fans to have ID cards back in the late 80s. And the Football Sports Association at the time was quite uh, prominent in getting everyone together to campaign. And I remember going everywhere with my fans saying no to ID cards badge um, in that time. And it was, a, it was a moment where Arsenal fans had to try and stand up and be counted to campaign for something they believed in, which was the soul of the club, being true to the fans. These are all things that feel very pertinent at the moment. Try not to load debt onto the fans uh, for paying for the renovations of the stadium. But in the end... Again, big dilemma. If you were a, 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 a North Bank regular, that was your spiritual home to watch the, the team. And you had a season ticket there, which was my situation and like thousands of others. The choice was pay up to watch your football in the, in the place you want to be or off you go. And um, it, was a, it was a really, really horrible situation to try and work out what side of the fence you had to go on because you were kind of, you either did it or you didn't. And um yeah, these were strange times, so I'll be going for the bond scheme. Yeah, no, I think I think that's a good choice. I remember it well. I was obviously just a young player at the time at Arsenal, but yeah, I remember the the, the stir 
that it caused and and yeah i think i think my 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 landlord and landlady were, in, were involved in that as well they, they had to make some some tough tough decisions uh james uh big disappointments from 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 the club what's what sticks out for you uh mine in typically selfish fashion is quite a personal one but um, about 10 years ago Arsenal issued me with a cease and desist order <laughs> and I was really annoyed about it. Basically, um, it was when they were kind of renovating the club badge uh, or just in the aftermath of that, they set about kind of protecting their copyright a lot more stringently. And people who follow me on social media on Twitter will know that I have a sort of little logo that I use there that's kind of a play upon uh, sort of a fusion of the Art Deco crest and it's, it contains the imagery of a cannon. And yeah, I received uh, a very strongly worded email from uh, Arsenal's lawyers about it. And I was really disappointed. But in fairness to the club, there is a kind of happy ending because I've still got it up. And basically, through a bit of back and forth, we managed to resolve our differences. So there's hope. <laughs> there's hope. Day. Maybe all this stuff that's going on All these on now. problems can be talked out, guys. <laughs> if we all just get round a table. <sighs> James, I think you, a... you need to do the talking on behalf of everyone, clearly. <laughs> yeah. Can we just yeah. send you to the club. Just knock just go and knock on a door and see if you can make them see sense. Yeah. yeah I don't know if they'll answer <laughs> to me this week, given what I've been saying, but we'll see. Uh James is a troublemaker. Amy is an activist. Who would have thought it, hey? <laughs> oh dear. Um yeah, no, I, I once got in I once got in trouble with Chelsea's uh, legal team. They they came after me and I, I took us a, a certain amount of satisfaction in that I have to say uh, until eventually um, yeah I, I got a little bit scared off um, I, my my disappointment well there's two that I've picked one is a little bit like yours Amy it's it's when when all of the shares um, from individual owners were were bought back in I think it was 2018 wasn't it when when the current ownership um, completed the sort of complete buy I just felt that really I felt really sad about that in terms of these shares, sometimes just just one that stayed in the family for for generations, and, and they held great sentimental value, didn't they? To, to to a lot of people, they basically had no choice but but to give up those shares. So that's that was that was sad for me, but very personal for me. I think the the decision that that, that most disappointed me in the past was was in uh, 1996 when when they decided to get rid of a young winger and uh, cash in on him actually they didn't cash in <laughs> they, made, they made zero money whatsoever uh, they just had to kick out a young winger uh, by the name of, of, of Clark and that was uh, yeah very disappointing but but they did they did sign Mark Overmars just a matter of weeks later and, and yeah the rest is history I don't think anyone else was that disappointed <laughs> right um, let's get to let's get to this now you can subscribe to The Athletic right now for a special price of $3.99 a month for six months that's 40% offered the full price of a subscription. You'll enjoy great analysis, in-depth features from the very best football writers around, as well as ad-free versions of all our podcasts. Just go to theathletic.com forward slash Arsenal pod to take advantage of this special 40% discount. That's theathletic.com forward slash Arsenal pod. And if you're enjoying the show, please do leave us a review. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com courtside to learn more. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7, U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. We were a bit uh, with the handbrake at the time. Uh, right, we've put off 
the inevitable for long enough, I think. Let's talk a little bit of Super League, shall we? Now, Adam Crafton, with input from many of the Athletics writers, broke the story in The Athletic. Um, We've got him with us, I'm pleased to say, to discuss the details and also hopefully help us understand it from more of an Arsenal perspective. Welcome along to the show, Adam. Hello, thank you for having me. No, it's absolutely our pre- our pleasure. Um, so so much to talk about, so little time, really. Uh, first of all, I guess, can you just put into perspective Arsenal's position here, their involvement in, in, in your understanding of their involvement in it up until this point, and, and and just maybe how much influence they might hold in the Super League if if of course it it goes through. Well, we know that Arsenal traditionally have been part of the Premier League top... Well, I suppose previously they were top four. Now they would be part of what we call the Big Six or what they call themselves as the Big Six. Um, And they consider that they are the clubs that drive the interest, that drive the revenue. They generate the money that fuels the Premier League and fuels the Champions League. Um, And and they feel that they deserve a bigger slice of that pie. and they, along with Manchester United and Liverpool, we, we believe they are you know, the English clubs who have probably driven it most ferociously. Tottenham, Manchester City and Chelsea have sort of come on their coat heels a little bit. Um, and for, you know, for a long time now, they've been in talks with leading European clubs asking, first of all, how can we reimagine the Champions League in a way that we get more power, more authority, more commercial um, more commercial swing towards us compared to the clubs that they consider to have a lesser heritage or history in European competition. Um, and, and clearly Arsenal are, are a significant voice at that table. I mean, even despite you know, real gross underperformance during the past few years, they are still at that table. And that's a testament, I suppose, to the politicking that they've done behind the scenes with people such as even Gazid is previously very involved in the European club scene um, and also Josh Kronker, Stan Kronker to a far lesser extent, Raul Sandlehi when he was at the club and they've managed to remain relevant. Um, and look, they're still in the Europa League semi-final this year so it's not as though they've disappeared altogether but as a Champions League threat it's been a very long time. So I think there are, you know, speaking to clubs around Europe this week, you know, certain clubs have said to me, how can we not be in? You know, it might be a one of those French clubs that's not PSG or um, some of the, the Spanish clubs like a Sevilla or Valencia, how can we not be in but Arsenal are in based on you know, recent performance? Um, but clearly you know, they, are, they are at that table and, that's, and at this moment in time they, they are very much sticking to it. Yeah, well, the common denominator, before I bring the other guys in on this, I'm sure they've all got lots and lots of questions to, to ask. The common denominator is is American ownership, isn't it, in terms of, of Manchester United, of Liverpool, of Arsenal, in terms of the, the, the British clubs that, that are pushing for this the most. And, and of course, it's a, an NBA, NFL style model, isn't it? Um, do, do you think they underestimated how unpalatable this this would be to European football fans? Um, no, no, I don't think they care, um, to be honest. And I think that's the thing that we sometimes forget in, in media and as journalists. I just don't think they care that much um, because, they, you know, of course they knew. They knew they were prepared for a backlash. I don't think they were necessarily prepared for it to go as nuclear as it has. Um, but, but it's interesting what you say in terms of the American ownerships because there's different, there's different agendas at play here. If you're a Manchester United, Liverpool or Arsenal and you're an American owner, you're looking at this thing, the Premier League, and you're saying, we have no guarantee every year. We don't have a guarantee of what our income is because we don't, we don't have a guaranteed place in the elite European competition. So can we devise a way that we, that we get that? Um, and from their point of view, it, it makes sense. If you're one of the Spanish clubs, Barcelona or Real Madrid, you're in... You know, in Madrid's case, just under a billion. In Barcelona's case, over a billion. And the Italian clubs in Serie A, it's been a really poor te- uh, television rights deal, which has fallen um, significantly in the latest round. So the domestic television rights scene in, in all across Europe is less promising. And therefore, these clubs are looking at it and saying, where's the growth for us? Where can we drive the revenue in, in the most um, prosperous way? Now, what, what is interesting is whether this is, and I think, you know, at the moment, everyone's taking it very seriously because you have to take it seriously if you want to stop it. Um, but I, the more I speak to people, the more I get the impression this is probably the starting point. You know, if you put down a really explosive demand, 
and work back from there? Can you end up with something better than what was already on the table in the first place? Can you drive people into that corner? Can they, by the end of this week maybe, get UEFA to give a concession? Could it lead to, for example, English football, the Premier League, getting six Champions League places rather than four? In which by which you would think Arsenal would more often than not, though not this season, manage to get into that. Um, would it be that you get more commercial power, 20, you know, an increase in the percentage of television income? So that's still the, 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 where the smart money is, that UEFA eventually make concessions, if not immediate, but down the line, and the clubs fall back into it. But for now, we have to take it seriously, and, and fans are you know angry about it they're angry because they feel you know and you guys are better placed than me to judge the sentiment of arsenal fans but i think it's particularly cynical and naked that they've done this when fans aren't in the stadium because you know that opportunity for really visible protest is almost contained to social media and to traditional media and the airwaves but imagine the power of that going around the world and the damage that that does does to those those clubs as brands and the, the anxiety that sponsors and advertisers would have with fans in the stadium so like i said you guys are far better just than me to, to to say what arsenal fans feel about it but i think that's the sentiment i'm getting it's pretty obvious from looking at social media which is the only way that anyone can express themselves very easily these days that arsenal supporters are um feeling deeply worried, ashamed, betrayed, all those words. I think Ian Wright spoke passionately and from the heart um, for a lot of people. But uh, as well as the fan sentiment, which, I mean, let's be honest here, um, when we think about how uh, decisions are made in football, fans tend to be fairly near the bottom of the pile of priorities for decision makers, whether that's VAR, whether that's when a, a match gets televised and who cares if you can get home from Newcastle on a Friday night at, you know, half past 11 at night or whatever it might be. Um, it You know, it's great that there's a lot of noise and it needs to be a lot more noise. So says the, uh, the activist in me. However, I'm quite interested to ask you, Adam, about players because um, when all this thing first exploded, it definitely seemed to be a, a, a question of, this war against heritage and supporters and the idea of sport and integrity and jeopardy and all the things that make us love football. But I'm fascinated by what players are thinking and doing and caring about because it seems to me that their job is suddenly thrown into a huge state of flux. They don't know what they're going to be allowed to play, what they're going to be expected to play, how much they're going to be being played. What does it affect their contracts? Should they be getting more money? Should it be, will they be getting different expectations? What are they thinking? Does this season matter? What are they going to be doing next season? You know, without without players, there's no football. So it's really important what they think. I th- yeah, and, and and I think I think when when we analyse this, we, ha- we have to take that into account. But we also, I think, you know, when we talk about players as a group, I mean, they, they all think differently, don't they? And they all engage differently. And I think if you, you know, it was, it was really interesting to just see some of the reaction yesterday and clearly players who aren't at these big six clubs, it's far easier for them to talk out against it than to speak out against your employers. There was a little bit of it. Bruno Fernandes shared a post on Instagram. Um... Um, for Manchester United, I know, you know I think we've reported that some of the Arsenal players, you know, maybe looking at the fact they were asked to take um, wage cuts only a year ago um, to help the club through the pandemic. Arsenal then take out a Bank of England loan as well. I think those players may be looking at you know the money that Arsenal may be able to get as a windfall here and thinking, well, if this was on the cards, why would we why would we need to have done that in the first place? Um, and equally, you know, the, the Treasury may be thinking. Well, if Arsenal were aware of this a few months ago, why did they need to take this money from the state, um, the state aid? So there's there's some really justified questions. I think I think the impression I've had from players, you know, I've spoken to a couple the last few days who are very passionately against it, and they're saying other players are saying the same, but they're terrified. They're terrified of talking out. They're scared of getting in trouble with their clubs. You know, they don't feel it's their place at this point because it's all it's very soon still. They they also know that they are almost the nuclear option, you know, something as dramatic as a strike or, um, you know, some, all the players coming out and making a statement together or something like that. It's not got to anywhere near that stage yet. On that, on that, Adam, couldn't it get to that stage if, player, if for instance, UEFA really, t- you know, t- took hold of this strongly and instantly 
banned the teams from from playing in their in the current competitions, effectively kicking out you know Arsenal, Chelsea, Man City from Europe now. That would certainly spark a reaction in dressing rooms. And, and also that there is the threat of the Euros in terms of players not being allowed to, to represent their countries if they belong to these, these you know, so-called dirty dozen clubs. Is, is, isn't that the trump card here? Well, I mean, there's threats and there's legal realities. Um, and I think, you know, can, you, can UEFA legally kick um, Chelsea, Real Madrid, Manchester City out of the Champions League semi-finals. How quickly can you do that? How long would that court case go on? They don't want to take these clubs to court, right? Because they want these clubs to fall back in line with their own competitions. I mean, if it gets to the point this goes to court, this thing is happening. Um, and that's not what anyone, that's not what UEFA want, and it's not what um, the clubs who are opposed to this want. So they have to tread a little bit carefully, but the threats are useful for, for that reason, because you know they're on the table. Um, and we've just, I think, just this lunchtime, Prime Minister in the UK has pledged to introduce legislation to try and stop this from happening. Again, how legal it will prove to be, we, we, we don't know yet. Um, I, th- I think with the, with the players, they are, they're, they're asking weird questions. Some of them are asking questions like, you know, does this affect my boot deal if, you know, I've got a Champions League uh, final bonus or if I score goals in the Europa League, will this carry over to a Super League? Like some of them are really cynical. Um, <laughs> and others are just saying, you know, is, I spoke to someone uh, um, who plays for Burnley the, um, the other day and they were saying, oh, well, if these top six get deducted points, could we finish higher up the table? Um, you know, could club in the relegation zone stay up? So everyone has their own little bit of self-interest um, in this. But I, I do think fundamentally, play, the vast majority of players, the impression I get is that they are, first of all, very... They feel very disenfranchised that their, their clubs have almost thrust this upon them and that they are now having to go out into interviews and justify the positions of owners who do not talk. Um, and I know you guys at Arsenal have spoken for years about silent Stan, but we have silent Glazers, we have silent John Henry, we have silent Roman Abramovich, we have silent Sheikh Mansour and we have silent Daniel Levy. Um, so none of these clubs at the moment are speaking out and it leaves their, their employees very, very exposed to answer questions that they've not made decisions on. Adam, do you have any sense of what the kind of timeline is here? I mean, obviously it's been a case of this happening over a very long protracted period, talks over years and years, you know, going back a long way and then seeming to happen very fast in terms of the announcement coming out in order to beat UEFA's own announcement about the revamped Champions League. When we look at this issue now and we look at the Prime Minister getting involved, we look at all the politicking that's happening around it, do you think we're talking days in terms of arriving at some sort of clear resolution one way or the other, or do you think this is going to drag and drag? Well, I think as we speak, uh, there's sort of increased speculation that at least one club might drop out um, amongst the Premier League Big Six. I think that would obviously be a, a huge crack. But, you know, you could replace them. You know, if you've still got five and you've still got the other six involved then it wouldn't be the end of the world um it's it's very difficult to know how advanced it is i mean there's we've been told there's financing from the american investment bank jp morgan um we're not yet aware of a broadcast partner because that is crucial because the the debt which this thing will be built on is going to be set against future broadcast revenue so whatever that broadcast deal is will have to be momentous to help fund this. Um, and there's still no information on where that, where that money is coming from. Um, so there's limitations to this. Um, I do think there has to be a resolution probably by the end of the week in terms of you know, uh, us getting some sort of clarity. Also because the European competitions are next week as well. So you've got Champions League semi-finals, Europa League semi-finals. Nobody wants this hanging over that, surely. Um, by next week but which way it will go as I said before I still feel like it's the starting point of a negotiation rather than we're going to have a Super League which you know which you know, sources close to those clubs are saying yeah we could start it in August well I don't think they will because you know they're talking about a 20 a 20 team league um, they only have 12 teams at the moment anyway they want 15 founder members they're struggling to get those three more to sign up and they still don't have a system of how do you qualify for it if you're amongst that other five they've not come up with any sort of plan for it Um, and also they talk about introducing a women's super league but there's absolutely no details on that either so I mean you know it's 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 baffling and it seems very at this point speechless it seems very rushed through considering that they've been they've been talking about this for decades apparently and very very quickly last one from me I've noticed on the branding it says the super league 
not European Super League. Anything significant there? Do you think, if it does go through, and I think that has to be regarded as a big if right now, is that deliberate and does it mean that, that one day we're anticipating a global league? I would th- I would, I'm sure they would want to leave it open to that. Why wouldn't you? I mean, if I was, if I was launching a, a Super League, why wouldn't you want it on different continents? I think it also it dangles the carrot to FIFA because they've spoken for a long time about wanting a Club World Cup and FIFA's statement when it first came out the other day wasn't as as sort of um, as negative about it as a lot of people hoped um, it would be um, which was interesting so I think they're still trying to tempt different organisations into the fold I think Infantino's been a lot stronger today but the other day, the president of FIFA, Gianni Infantino, was nowhere near the same level of strength as we were seeing from Seferin at UEFA, for example. So I do think that, yeah, yeah, I think you raise an interesting point in that. But the branding's awful, isn't it? Have you seen the graphic? Like, I mean, honestly, it's like, it's as if it's like an IT class from 2006 um, that, they've, that they've brought it together. Um, but now I'm going to get in loads of trouble for saying that. <laughs> <laughs> now, very, very insightful, Adam. Really, really appreciate your time today. Um, Adam Crafton there of The Athletic. Um, filling us in on some of the details uh, with the European Super League. Looking for the best place to buy tickets for any of your favorite teams or sporting events? We've got the spot. Our partner, StubHub, has been the leading ticket marketplace in the world for over 20 years, providing a 100% guarantee with every order. From a worldwide selection of live events, the widest choice of tickets and industry-leading partnerships, StubHub has what you need to purchase with confidence. StubHub an official partner of The Athletic. We were a bit uh, with the handbrake at time. Right, let's chat amongst ourselves for a little bit on this subject, shall we? Uh, James, I noticed that you'd written an article on The Athletic uh, about all this, and you used a, a, a term that, that sort of resonated with me a little bit, when, when, when you described it as a get-out-of-jail-free card to some degree, mm. because there, there will be people looking at this and thinking, well, Arsenal, it's not going too well on the pitch, off the pitch. There, there, there are issues too, of course, surrounding the, the management of the club. Um, this kind of solves everything if it, if it goes through, doesn't it? And it takes the heat off of performance-related progress. Um, yeah, your thoughts on that? I mean... It's interesting, Adam was talking about kind of these clubs being involved in a, a reimagination of the Champions League. And I was like, well, one of the leaps of the imagination they've made is that Arsenal are in it. Um, which, you know, I, I think clearly Arsenal is a massive club. Clearly, they're one of the biggest, most influential clubs in Europe. Um, and I, I completely appreciate that they're going to be involved at these discussions at the highest level. But speaking from sort of a more emotional perspective, it doesn't quite sit right with me that Arsenal will be included in what is supposedly Europe's premier competition based not on sporting merit, but based on meetings and conversations and business negotiations. I'm not comfortable with that. It feels to me like it contravenes something quite fundamental in sort of the sporting culture that I've grown up with. Um, And so, yeah, it's difficult to kind of properly separate out my feelings about it. You know, I can see that from a business perspective, Arsenal feel they need to be in these conversations and there is a benefit to them being part of it. But I can't quite escape the fact that it's very difficult for me to feel happy about that because A, I don't particularly like the model and B, I'm not entirely sure they deserve it. Mm, yeah, no, look, I, I'm sure you're not alone in in having those, those thoughts. Rich Kane has been on the mailbag, says even if Arsenal don't get end, up, end up getting thrown out of the Europa League with the threat of it currently hanging over their heads, how does Arteta motivate the team for the rest of the season it's seemingly been a struggle already to keep them motivated up until this point and now this Amy it's it's an absolute sort of um, firework that's been let off in, in, in the changing room at Arsenal and, 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 and I feel very sort of uneasy about the whole situation I think we probably all do as because we don't know what's around the corner it will be the same for the players won't it it will be unsettling massively so and I mean you know the question which says how will Arteta motivate them if we actually stop and think about Arteta's period in management it's so nuts that he kind of came into a, you know a struggling club that was that really all over the shop and it was a big mess with lots of its own what might be defined as I suppose normal football problems 
then you've got COVID and everyone was like, okay, you know, you're a rookie manager, you're a couple months in and you're dealing with a global pandemic and behind closed doors football, getting to a cup final, a difficult second season, um, lots of change behind the scenes. And suddenly you're in the, you know, the eye of a completely unforeseen storm. Um, it's, I can't imagine how the conversations that are, are being had at the moment and, you know, I think even if you're an experienced manager, I found myself imagining uh, over the last couple of days at various points, like almost feeling the absence of Arsene Wenger a bit as a spokesman, as a um, somebody who stands for things. And you think back of all the uh, periods of, of history where he spoke out against financial doping or where he challenged FFP or where he talked about principles of the game and values and all that stuff that was a big part of, the, you know him and and how he presented uh, his style of management, what he felt was important for the football club, and Mikel Arteta in his first uh, job having to deal with something as massive of, as this. Where's your you know wh- what are you going to do? Are you going to have hard conversations with the people above you? Uh, how are you going to be talking to your players? It's how are you gonna how are you gonna prepare a team for a Europa League semi final that just a few days ago felt like a you know a, a massive opportunity a get out of jail free card of a different sort but a much more simplistic one. What do you think the chances are that Mikel Arteta will be the first person we hear from at Arsenal about this Super League? Do, what are the chances that he's going to be the guy, kind of as Jurgen Klopp was as Liverpool manager yesterday, called upon to? to deal with those inquiries in a public Well, form. all the evidence is that we ain't hearing anything from anybody else in a hurry. I mean, let's be honest. Uh, and I think that, again, just leads to that. That's that's allowed us as fans and people who care about the club to sort of stew in this frustration of like, what is this? Like, there's not enough detail. Uh, it seems to have been rushed through, as we've said. It goes against the grain of everything we understand. Um yeah, I feel I, I I just cannot get my little brain around the idea of having a sporting endeavour where you're not rewarded for success or penalised by failure. I mean, let's be honest here. Let, let's just imagine this current Arsenal squad in August is suddenly in this Super League with these the opponents, some of which we know, uh, uh, and a few spaces that are up for grabs. Let's just say, hypothetically speaking, that I don't know, a Porto or uh, an Ajax gets invited in as one of the guest passes for a season. And Arsenal finish rock bottom 20th of this deranged new new Super League. Um, getting, you know, how much fun is it going to be? What is your worst thing about European football? Is it playing against another English team in Europe? I mean, how many games that are in this so-called you know, Super League are going to be against other English teams who, you know, a lot of whom are stronger than Arsenal at the moment. <sighs> this could be a, this could be this pretty, thing? pretty tough yeah. stuff. How would you feel about, you know, being <laughs> consigned to this misery? You can't even get out of it. You can't even get relegated. <laughs> it's like a nightmare, it's a potentially. Very, it's a very good point, Amy. Very well made. <laughs> uh, do, we, do we like the format? Because oh. and, and what do we think of the UEFA format? Mm. Because the, the, the Swiss model UEFA format with this giant thirty-six team league seems 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 dreadfully dull to to me anyway. And with this, with the Super League um, theory of, 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 of ten, two two groups of of, of ten, if and this this isn't going to happen, but if they did open it up to relegation and nothing was guaranteed, would would that be a a, a better format anyway than what we've got. For me, the Champions League doesn't doesn't need changing. I understand from a business point of view they want more from it, but as a sporting competition, I'm all right with it. Aren't you? Uh, Adrian, I'll be honest with you. A- a- any competition, once you start having maths that I don't understand, which is basically <laughs> anything that isn't sort of two, four, eight, sixteen. Yes, I'm I'm out. I can't do it. I yeah. can't. It, 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 you're losing me. Um, and, you know, I think that, that there's been too much messing with 
football in recent years with you know newfangled ideas to start messing around with basic maths and it doesn't it doesn't help um it should be a pretty fundamental thing when you're when you're creating a competition that it actually sort of adds up call me old-fashioned um but yeah I, I i find that i find that a struggle i agree I, I agree with you i think that the champions league if you ask most players the reason they all love the Champions League is that actually the format in the last few years, and I was one of those people who was very um, upset when it went away from being pure knockout. I'm a pathetic old-fashioned relic, but you know that's what I grew up with, and it was great because every game had jeopardy in it, every single one. Uh, and of course, that changes slightly when you have groups and so on. But having you know allowed myself to get used to. Uh, the way they change things around with the, 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 the modernization, the current system is a good one. And maybe all this problem started with with the greed of UEFA, with trying to actually um, get more revenue, get more teams involved. And then the response comes from, you know, reignited a bit of the drive behind teams who have always flirted with the idea of a Super League. And here we are. Absolutely. Should we talk football? <laughs> Should we talk about the actual football now? <laughs> I think it's time, isn't it? Um, look, on the pitch, Arsenal against Fulham. Pretty forgettable. Good start. Very strong finish. But what, what went on in between wasn't wasn't wholly pretty. Um, but but we, we should probably start with the, the Slavia-Prague game. That purple patch, guys, that was pretty tidy, wasn't it, from a footballing perspective? That was much... Much more like it. Did it? Did it excite you that 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 spell of football we saw over there? Yeah, it feels a long time ago now. I have to say, but um, of course that was a fantastic night, and I think uh, I was, it was an occasion where I felt very proud of the club on several counts. First of all, because of the amazing talent they've produced through academy and the performance they produced. I mean, Smith Rowe and Saka were unplayable. I thought, and I also think the way. The players came together with the coaching staff and you know decided they were going to uh, take the knee in the get before the game and take a stand on an issue that was obviously really important to them and, and the fact they delivered such a brilliant performance after that you know you do come away from that with a great deal of pride. Um, it's interesting. It was a sort of an unusual experience as an Arsenal fan because it was a game that you could kind of relax into. I mean, Arsenal they didn't have to dominate the entire ninety minutes. They just really made the most of that spell where they were on top. And after they had that goal disallowed, they didn't let it set them back at all. They just kept coming, and they were really, really clinical in those moments. And yeah, that second half we did, of course, great get an excellent goal through Lacazette. But it was kind of a an unfamiliar alien feeling of feeling very secure and very, very comfortable. It was decent. It really was. It was high-octane football. It was dynamic. Like you say, the younger players were very much at the heart of, of everything that, that we did well in, in that game. And, and, and Amy, we, we found what's been missing for almost the entirety of this season, if I'm being honest. And that's a killer finish. We actually... We actually had our shooting boots on because for there is lots of aspects of Arsenal season that that you can be critical of and and I have we all have over the course of, of the current campaign but the bottom line is the finishing has been one of one of the key the key problems um and, and it was great to see wasn't it just you know smashing them in effectively yeah it was it was it was a sort I mean this is why I think supporting Arsenal and particularly this season has been so um so challenging, really, in a way, for for everybody, because you're going on this ridiculous roller coaster where at times this team is totally enthralling and you can feel so positive and encouraged and enthusiastic. At times they make daft mistakes. At times they're totally cautious and a bit boring. Sometimes you get all this stuff in the same game. Um, and, you know, I think what, what Arsenal need is to uh, find that kind of rhythm and that and confidence necessary to be able to show more of that football on a more frequent basis. That's when the next levels of progress come. But I mean, sitting here right now, it just seems mad even thinking about that because even looking ahead to you know the Europa League semi final against Villarreal, I mean, it seems so bonkers that uh, after the Slavia Prague game, well, people are talking about Unai Emery and. Um, possibility of getting back into the Champions League through the back door and 
so on and so forth and how they're going to get uh, get around the, the the worrying number of serious injuries to important players can you know can they survive uh through these you know three more what look like cup finals the two semis and potentially a final to try and salvage something remarkable from what's been a difficult season um and yet it's so hard to focus. I think it just goes back to what we were talking about before. <laughs> yeah. Like, well, we'd be allowed to play in those games. <laughs> you know, I mean, it's, even it's... thinking about the game on Friday night, I'm slightly more interested by if there's a some sort of um, fan movement outside the ground that might might show some sort of uh, emotion or interruption or, or or try and kind of sweep the conversation in a different direction. I mean, there's still a game to play. How do you feel about it? I don't know. The whole thing's terribly confusing. I feel like it's messed with your whole sense of team analysis or or hopes for where the club is going or worries for what's going on on the pitch. It's it, it's it's, yeah. it's it, weird. It, is, it is something that messes with the head. Mm. Um, but but the football is likely to continue. <laughs> yeah, it's likely so. to yeah. to continue and. <laughs> And there are points to discuss for when for when it does pick up again, and and when, you know, when Arsenal you know, get back to the business of trying to win can games. We just, can we just what, have a I, moment for Matt Ryan though for that that headed assist? Yeah, it's a good it's a good little oh, pre assist. Yeah, it's great. yeah, it's it's always a delight, isn't it, when a goalkeeper actually actually plays a part in a goal? And it was good to see him play, wasn't it? Um, and 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 the, the sort of logic behind the decision was was interesting. James sort of said he's been training like a beast. I wanted to you know give him. You know, so, some reward for that. Effectively, do you think? Do you think it was the right? Obviously, it was the right game to pick pick him for because Fulham offered next to no threat, didn't they? Yeah, and I think uh, you know, Burn Leno's not been absolutely at the top of his game recently. He's made a few errors or had a few questionable performances. Never, don't think it's the worst thing to rotate a player out and remind them that you know there is an alternative, and maybe even just give them that kind of break. It's been such a an endurance feat this season. I think psychologically for a goalkeeper as much as physically, it makes sense to shake it up. I also think why not have a look at Matt Ryan? You know, he's here on loan. Arsenal ultimately do need someone for that spot on a permanent basis. They need a number two goalkeeper. Let's see what he's got. Let's see what he's made of. If he's been training well, let's see how he fares in a Premier League game. I would be pretty comfortable with seeing a bit more of him, to be honest, in what remains the Premier League. And there are a few players that applies to you know, if I think of somebody like uh, Florian Balogun, who's set to sign a new contract, I think it'd be nice to see him get 20 minutes here or there. Just maximise the opportunities we have, because I don't really think our Premier League campaign is going anywhere in a hurry. I think it is all about the Europa League at this point. So let's use some of those fixtures to help with our squad planning decisions that we face ahead of the summer. Yeah, no, I completely concur with that, really. Um, it does feel like Mikel Arteta's starting to experiment a little bit. We've seen that with... With Granit Xhaka, his positioning. I've got to ask you what what your thoughts are on on this kind of unique hybrid left back role, Amy. What what have you made of it? Because I I think it suits him. I really do. Uh, in terms of the positions that he's passing the ball from, um, he, he he's effectively a third centre back, isn't he? At the moment, but but occupying that that sort of non overlapping. Left, left back role. Do you think this is something that we're going to see um, between now and the end of the season because of Tierney being out? Or is this something we may only see in matches that we dominate the ball in? Because let's let's be honest, the three games that we've, we've, we've seen, with the slight exception of Slavia, but, but we, were, we were looking to dominate there. Um, yeah, what what have you made? What have you made of Xhaka in this position? I think you make a, a good good point about whether you know what kind of games you might see it in, and whether it's a, a semi permanent thing or or whether it's a horses for courses thing. And I think it's a testament to the way Granite Xhaka understands the game and serves the team, which is um, things that are always praised by his managers that he's trusted to do something like that and does it pretty well but I'd be maybe a bit more worried about it if it was against uh, a really really brilliant winger exactly Um, (laughs) so that would be my caveat I think uh, it's a small sample size but it's it's um, one that has reflected well for him and for Arteta and taking that choice you know uh, having a left-sided player uh, left-footed player there clearly is 
it, it, there have been some previous mistakes that suggest that that's important and he so, seems the best bet to do that and I, I, I think there were some games when he was thrown in as an emergency centre-half did he not play centre-back at Chelsea in the game when Martinelli yeah. scored yeah. that goal in an emergency situation yeah. and he was absolutely terrific Very good. he was really 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 <laughs> good. good and I, I remember watching that game thinking he might end up playing centre-back you know and so actually this hybrid model taps into that aspect of what he's capable of um, and maybe doesn't, uh, you know, again, if it's not a fast winger, it doesn't expose the, the sort of sometimes the lack of fast sort of speed over a uh, short distance. My, my only question, though, with it is that actually if, um, if we try and put aside everything we've been talking about and we care about the Europa League and trying to win this competition and maybe getting into the Champions League, which may still exist. Uh, I would worry about not having him in midfield if he was playing that role because I'm still a little bit dubious about against the best teams whether Ceballos can manage. Yeah. So, James, what's your thoughts on that? Because we, obviously Thomas Partey, we know we, we saw him at Sheffield United hold the midfield together. We saw him against Slavia Prague pretty much as the only guy in there because Danny Ceballos was also given this sort of hybrid move over to the left type yeah. role. Um, he can handle it against certain teams. I think with El Nini, we saw something different against Fulham. Um, yeah, what's your thoughts on it? Because it does weaken an area that we're already relatively weak in, doesn't it? It does, although I would say there have been games where Partey and Shaka have ostensibly played as a sort of midfield pair. But even then, Shaka will sometimes vacate that space, be that to either sort of operate in that left-back role in build-up or sometimes as the sort of left-sided midfield player. It's often a, a very wide midfield three that Arteta uses in Partey. He is trusted to kind of dominate that central ground quite frequently. Um, I, I really like what Shaka's done in that left-back position. And I think of Arsenal's current options, I think it is the best available alternative I think when he went down against Fulham with what looked initially like a pretty bad injury my heart was in my mouth because he's such an important player to this team you know whether that is at left back or in central midfield um, so my inclination would probably be to kind of stick with the shape that is kind of working um, but but I do see the counterpoint that it does mean we have to not use him in the middle of the park where he has also been good of late yeah absolutely absolutely uh, just just one sort of Add on to that, if he continues in this role where he doesn't overlap, does it not then negate the use of a right footer as the left-sided forward? Because I think what, what works well is when you've got an Ober or a Martinelli or somebody on, on that side that, that wants to cut in, it, it opens up the pathway for, for Tini to overlap. That's not happening. So for me, and we saw this, didn't we, against Slavia, is this not Pepe's time to shine as the left-sided forward. I think there's a nice balance to that. Certainly, if you've not got someone going on the outside, you want somebody who can. Pepe, with his left foot, does that. I mean, if you think of the assist he produced for the fourth goal, uh, say that Lacazette scored against Slavia, you know, that kind of run and delivery is what Tierney often provides to Arsenal in attack. And Pepe has the ability to do that in that channel. Uh, I think... Maybe potentially Gabriel Martinelli is a dribbler who can go outside as well as inside, even if his inclination from the left is always going to be to drive onto his good right foot. He does give you variety at least. Uh, but some of Arsenal's other options, maybe a Smith Rowe or maybe a Willian, probably less inclined to do that. So I do think it's all about balance, it's all about partnerships. And if you're going to pick Shaka in that left back role, you know, it does dictate what you can do ahead of it. You do require Sabios to kind of do that sort of half wing back role. You do require, ideally, someone like Pepe to give you the width on the outside. Um, so every decision Arteta makes, he needs to think about how that's going to affect the other relationships on the pitch as well. OK, it's time for the random ass generator. Our producer will pick out a name from an imaginary tombola and forward it to me any second. Now, the idea is to go around the room, as it were, with a factoid, a memory or an anecdote about a certain player from the past. And today's person is Ray Parler, the Romford Pele. Oh, we haven't got enough <laughs> time for brings, Ray. <laughs> yeah, that brings a smile to my face. Uh, come on, Amy, kick us off. Oh, my God. Um... 
Oh, the, uh, 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 the obvious one is, is the goal. I'll leave that to someone else in the final. So I'm going to go for um, uh, his great story of when he wound, wound up Martin Keown on the day that Arsenal became invincible. They won the league against... Uh, they'd already won the league. They needed to carry on and not lose, which they did against Leicester City at home. Beautiful, sunny, glorious, gorgeous day to dream about at Highbury. And uh, Martin Keown, who was a sub, needed to get one more appearance to qualify for his championship medal. And Ray was one of the other subs uh, and decided for a laugh to take his uh, tracksuit off and start warming up with about five or ten minutes to go um, and pretend that he was coming on. And Arson was quite good at actually being a bit uh, dozy sometimes in situations like this. And I think he knew he was going to bring on Martin, but he could be a bit forgetful and... Um, uh, I think that um, I think Martin mo almost he was sweating and getting more and more stressed out and almost went and grabbed Arson by the neck to say, get me on. And uh, Ray just thought it was obviously hilarious. And he had done exactly what he wanted to do, which was uh, pull off a classic Ray Parler wind up. You can, st you can always wind up, Joe, <laughs> let me tell you. He is the easiest, easiest teammate of all my teammates ever going down through with the leagues, the easiest person to wind up and to, and to this day let me tell you if you would you could wind him up about his commentary and he, he wouldn't sleep for days I'm telling you so <laughs> so like, if you get the chance maybe do it <laughs> um, James uh, Ray Parler yeah I, you know the first thing that jumps into my mind I heard Arsene Wenger talking about Ray Parler once and you know Ray's this big colourful character everyone's got a good Ray Parler anecdote but something Arsene Wenger said was he he felt that almost as a consequence of that maybe Ray wasn't sufficiently recognised for how good he was. Uh, and I think he was also unfortunate to play for Arsenal and for England in a time where England had David Beckham on the right side of midfield. wasn't necessarily easy for him to get as much recognition at international level as his talent uh, might have deserved. But but I really, you know, I really agree with Wenger there. I think Ray Parler was a brilliant player. And, you know, if you ask Lee Dixon, who played behind him, he, he will eulogise about his qualities and his engine certainly was fantastic. His fitness was incredible, but there was real technical ability there. And I don't know if many would have anticipated him surviving and sustaining in the Arsene Wenger teams quite as well as he did. And I think the fact that he did so was a testament to his quality. Yeah, no, he, he yeah, he, he punched above his weight, I think, at, at times there. But he ha he always had his value to the side. For me, look, so many memories. Some I can some I can broadcast, some I can't. We're, we're short <laughs> on time. Um, but I remember him as a kid. Um, you know, he's not talked about, obviously, that that part of his sort of life and, and, and whatnot. I remember him. I remember sitting in the West Ham lower. He was a big West Ham fan, huge West Ham fan. I remember sitting quite close to him as a sort of 12, 12 13 year old and he would have been 14, 15 and and yeah, he was in amongst the West Ham fans when Arsenal played West Ham. And I remember him going bonkers um, when, when West Ham scored. I think it might have been the game Lee, Lee Rossini scored. I can't remember. But yeah, he was a proper hammer. And, and, and people people forget that. Um, when he was in the youth team, he was an absolute beast. And, and he actually set the tone for... He set a really great example for the rest of us because he got called up for the first team. I think he played at Anfield, didn't he? While he was when he was very young, I think he was just eighteen, and and it it, it just gave every it, it came as a bolt from the blue, and it, it lifted everybody in and around the youth team. That wow, Ray's Ray's with the first team, so that pathway suddenly became clearer. And 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 and, and one other one that that's personal to me is I went on loan during Wenger's first season to 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 Rotherham and and then to Southend. When I came back, the players were at a different level in terms of their physicality they were unbelievably more powerful we you know a lot of this has been given credit with the, with the creatine and the the way that the players were living and i just remember playing in a practice match on the left side up against ray who was on the right and he just exploded past me at, 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 with so much power that it was frightening and, and i just thought wow already arson wenger's taken ray and, and 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 the rest of these guys to to a higher plane and Look, the rest is, is history. That was in 1997 and, and we know what happened in, in 1998. So, yeah, in, incredible, really. One quick, one very quick one each. I think we've got time for uh, James on Ray. 
I mean, Amy mentioned it, but I have to mention 2002 FA Cup final. I mean, as the brother of a Chelsea fan, uh, that goal means an enormous amount to me. And uh, I had a terrific view of it as well as it sailed into the top corner. I think Lee Dixon was behind the goal, arms aloft, knew it was in. Um, Yeah, just an extraordinary goal on the best possible stage. And he scored some brilliant goals, actually. I mean, that's what... uh, I think I sometimes forget about him. He had a few screamers and one got, of the best hat-tricks yeah. I've ever seen. Was it against Valencia? He scored an amazing goal. Uh, absolute uh, thunderous. Well but yeah, that hat-trick. I was at that game in uh, Bremen. Werder Bremen was uh, lived oh, up to the one for Pelé name there for sure. <laughs> and uh, yeah, Amy, any, anything else to add? To, I know, well, that, I know that there's so much. There is. Yeah. I mean, there's just more anecdotes than I, we we could dedicate a whole pod to him. But um, you mentioned the the cup final goal. Well, a few days later, Arsenal went to Old Trafford to try and clinch the double, and it was a not far for bloodbath as far as Man United want to kick everyone on the, off the pitch. And uh, Ray was man of the match that day. And it needed uh, real grit and determination to make sure that that you know the, that that was the right result for Arsenal. And there was quite a lot of players missing, a lot of key players missing that night, and Ray stepped in and uh, put in an absolutely immense performance. Um, ended up with the man of the match champagne, which is subject to another great anecdote, but needs a bit more telling. Where I think he was under instructions <laughs> not to have had a drink from Arsene in between the cup final and the game at Old Trafford. Um, needless to say, it didn't quite go to plan. And uh, no. <laughs> Arsene apparently came up to him when he had his man in the match champagne in the tunnel at Old Trafford and was thinking, my God, he, Ray's thinking life doesn't get any better than this. I've scored in the cup final, a man in the match, we've won the double. And uh, Arsene tapped him on the shoulder and said, you, you know why that happened today, Ray? Because I told you not to have any drink in between the two matches. <laughs> <laughs> if only you knew, Arsene. Yeah, I, I I spoke to Ray once about that. He actually described that as his his favourite performance for Arsenal because yeah, uh, going again and 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 I think with the the scenario is basically the best week of his of his career, maybe of his life. So yeah, great 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 pick up there, Amy. Right, let's let's end the podcast, shall we? Like we always do with a song. T. Wright wrote in and suggested Gallagher and Lyle's Breakaway. Seems very apt to me. Um, look, I've got I've got two songs that I really like. Abba's Money, Money, Money obviously springs to mind. And, and Kenny Rogers. I've, I've been prone, I, I must admit, to, to, to singing sing to this one, The Gambler, because it does feel that this is one heck of a gamble from, from, uh, from all the clubs involved. Just fascinating to... To find out which how how it's all going to land uh, once they sit around that poker table, guys, um, give me a song. I'll give you a song. I, I was sort of thinking of quite <laughs> angry songs uh, yesterday. <laughs> I was thinking about you know revolution and fighting the power and themes like that. And then I was stood in my kitchen. I just had the radio on, uh, and I was feeling quite deflated and down and melancholic about the situation. And a, a song came on. It's actually by Rihanna. Song called Stay, and it's a really lovely melancholic pop song, and it just really captured my mood. It didn't necessarily make me feel better, but it just kind of was the perfect accompaniment for that feeling I'm feeling of sort of like I'm slightly in the middle of a breakup. Um, so I'll go for that. Why not? Take us away, Amy. Uh, well, kind of continuing the uh, breakup um, theme. Uh, Ty have made a great suggestion of uh, Stevie V and Dirty Cash, um, but I'm going to go instead of uh, Ask <laughs> House. I'm going to go for some uh, 1980s electronica and um, Yazoo. Don't go.
anyway. <laughs> Guys, I've really, really enjoyed today. Um, yeah, what a, what a day to step in for Stony Hay. Um, not the usual kind of handbrake off, but hopefully we've made it <laughs> half decent listening for you at home. Many thanks then to Amy Lawrence, James McNicholas, and a special thanks to Adam Crafton, of course, for making the time to speak to us earlier. Thanks also to our top producer, Tayo Popula. I'm Adrian Clark. Hopefully we'll speak again soon. Thank you.